Pastor Sam, glad you're with us this morning. Uh, I want to start by sharing with you my favorite verse in Scripture, and that's on this wonderful coffee cup. It says, I could do all things through Christ, or a verse taken out of context. And um, obviously it's a facetious, it's not a real verse, but a very powerful one. Um, and uh, we are in the midst of walking, oh, the AC's just shut off right when I started. Um, we are in the midst of walking through a series where um, it's a bit of a, an invitation into some of the stuff that uh, I wrestle with, some of the stuff that um, most of the conversations I have become a bit of wrestling conversations with things like doubt, uh, disillusionment, um, doubt around uh, pieces of scripture, what is true of the Bible, what is um, real, um, and, and, and the sort of facts, the histories, and how we process all that. Um, some of the disillusionment that has come over the last particularly four years of um, watching the church particularly at large uh, and uh, feeling like, uh, particularly here, I mean, it resonate, but even individually as a faith, it's like, where, where do I fit in? I don't, I don't see the church doing or being the things that I think the church should be. Uh, dis- disorientation, which happens when um, the struggles and the rubber meets the road of life, um, when suffering really does come. And some of the, the hope and the promises that God speaks feel in contrast to some of your experience. Um, and then sometimes just discipleship, where growing and maturing in the faith and, and learning more about who God is challenges some of the things you used to believe about uh, what is true and what is right and, and understanding those things deeper. And um, today, uh, there's a series of questions, because uh, we do have a forum online. Uh, I really wanted to sort of get a, a pulse. I know the things I ask questions about, but I want to ask, get a pulse on that much more of y'all. Uh, and so uh, if you went to, uh, I, I shortened it so it's easier to remember. Uh, if you go to resonateatlanta.org forward slash questions, um, you can easily pull that form up uh, and add to it because I'm about to probably add a thousand questions to your plate today. Um, but uh, it is an opportunity uh, anonymously too, uh, other than Jake Choby who signed his name to his questions, um, which was great, um, which was awesome too, because Jake, I think, asked all the same questions I ask all the time. Um, but uh, you can do it anonymously. Uh, so if it's like, I don't know how Chris is going to take this, I'll be, I'll be good. And so we do have questions all over the place. Uh, we have a, a series of questions related to LGBTQ, sexuality, and gender issues, um, and we will talk to that um, because it's, it's such a highlight moment uh, in America to talk about that. Um, but we also have like a series of questions, and uh, some of those are like, what about the dinosaurs? Uh, Adam and Eve, uh, those kind of conversations, genocide in Joshua, do we interpret things literally, metaphorically, how do we know when, all those sort of things. And there's, so there's a whole series of questions that do exist in sort of the, the feedback I've gotten that are in some ways related to how do we read our Bibles. And, um, and so uh, this week and next week, I want to sort of take a moment to, to instead of sort of answering, I, I want to take a, almost like a step back and ask that question. I'll go, how, how, what is this book? And, and how should we approach it? And how do we unpack it? And how do we make sense of some of the things that we find in here? Because I think that will also help us deal with some of those questions. I may not deal with all the questions specifically. Uh, tomorrow or next week, maybe tied into the back end of that sermon, I'll deal with a series of, of some of those questions. Um, but um, I think it's really helpful for us uh, to sort of walk through that. Uh, and so 
I, I want to start with this verse from 2 Timothy because it becomes sort of the starting spot for me. So Paul, writing his letter to Timothy, says this, All scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, or for training in righteousness. Now this becomes a fascinating starting point. Uh, it's one of the things that we get, sort of a direct statement of what scripture is, because we don't actually have a lot of those sort of statements. And it says all scripture is theonustos. And, and if, you, um, if you participated in the class that Roger and I taught last fall. Um, this might be some rehashing today, but um, that's okay. Maybe it'll challenge you to send classes and participate because uh, this, these are some of the things we, we talk through. But the theonustos, and it's a word that Paul completely makes up. It doesn't exist in history before 2 Timothy uh, uh, 3, and it shows up. And he takes a sort of a compound uh, word, a, a theo, which is related to God, and nustos, which is either breath, wind, or spirit. And so he uses this word and, and, and speaks of Scripture in this way. And depending on your translation, you might read it as um, it's been inspired by God. So some translations like the NASB or the New King James or something like that speaks about it being inspired. Uh, the ESV takes it as God breathed. Um, and you understand why, because it's a made-up word uh, by Paul, and it involves a, the noustos, which can be either of those things. So uh, inspirited, inspired would be uh, one of those ways to take it. But let's pause because, like I said, it, it's, it's a new term. And how does Scripture actually speak about how it's God-breathed, how it's inspired, how it came to be? And I hope today we could kind of take a step back a little bit and disconnect some of our assumptions on what the Bible is with what it actually is. Because I think for many of us, we function with a bit of a Mormon or Islamic understanding of how the Bible actually is. I think for some of us, we have this sort of golden tablets from heaven or the Quran sort of coming in and this just being delivered by uh, Allah sort of understanding of how the Bible came to be. The difficulty is that's not how the Bible speaks of how it came to be. It, and, and it becomes sort of this God dictated, God overrode the sensibilities of the authors. He just sort of took control of them wrote what he needed to write, and then we ended up with this collection of letters and books and everything else over time. And I want to argue, at least this week and particularly next week, that this is probably one of the lowest views of the Bible you could possibly have. It makes the Bible very, very plain. It makes the Bible very, very um, uh, simplistic uh, in a way that the Bible doesn't actually present itself as. It, and it does so in a way that um, ignores what the Bible says about itself. Now, if you're nervous and you're like, well, here comes Chris. He's a liberal now. Um, let me just say very, very directly, I believe the Bible is fully the inspired word of God. I believe that. I think it's authoritative in terms of what it teaches. Um, things that I will gladly affirm because scripture affirms uh, uh, some of those things. Um, and, uh, and it creates... Um, well, I want to walk through, like I said, I want to talk about how those things came to be. What does it actually mean to be inspired? What does it actually mean to be authoritative? And how does it get to be those things? And be careful not to create unnecessary misunderstandings. Because for so many of us, I think we're just not taught some of the stuff I'll cover today. Some of you, it might be, yeah, of course. 
Um, but for some of you, it might be brand new, and I think it's important to probably walk through those, given some of the questions I think I was asked on that form. So let's talk about the Old Testament first. Since when Paul is writing to Timothy, guess what, how much of the New Testament they probably have at this point in time? Likely very, very, very little. <laughs> They've heard the Gospels. They're probably still fairly auditory or oral at this point in time. Uh, it seemed like once uh, people started dying off, they're like, hey, we really need to write some of this stuff down. And so um, they may not have had a lot. And so when Paul says this, I think Paul's more referring to the Old Testament than even more uh, of some of the New Testament writings that are starting to show up and people are starting to look at as scripture or authority. So let's go back to at least the first mention of anything about writing stuff down, which happens in Exodus 17. I'm going to be jumping around a ton today. You're welcome to follow along with me. There will be verses on the screen for some of this. Um, so um, I will warn you now. Uh, Exodus 17, 8 through 9. Uh, it starts with, Then Amalek came and fought with from, uh, fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men to go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of, of God in my hands. This is, a, if you have if you been around the church or been around the faith, this is a pretty famous story. Uh, the Israelites have left Egypt. They're out in the desert. This group of Amaleks uh, start, uh, or Amalek and his people start fighting uh, against the Israelites. Moses goes up the mountain. He holds his staff up. While he's holding it up, they're winning. While he drops it, they're losing. People help him hold his hands up. It's a famous story. And they win, they win the battle. And then go down to verse 14. What happens? Then the Lord said to Moses, write this in a memorial in a book. Now that sounds pretty mundane, right? God says, hey, you guys just won a great battle. You should probably write that down. Right? Like, it's, it's pretty mundane. It's not, hey, Moses, I'm going to take over your mind, soul, and spirit and cause you to do a certain thing. It's, hey, you won the battle. Write, write down what, what happened here. Write down what I did. Uh, let's jump ahead to Exodus 24. It's not too far ahead. Then God said to Moses, and he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, uh, Nabab, uh, Abihu, um, and 70 of the elders of Israel and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. Uh, so, so at some point, he, he leaves. He, come, he, he hears from the Lord. He comes and tells the people what the words of the Lord and the rules are. And all the people answered in one voice and said, All the words of the Lord have spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. And he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars, according to the 12 tribes. Now, once again, does this sound like God overrode Moses' personality or anything at this moment? No. No. Moses goes up to God. God tells him a bunch of things. Moses comes down the mountain, tells all the people those things. They all say, great, we'll do those things. And then he decided to write it down. Right? There are times when Moses and the prophets and even the histories, they start naming books that we don't even have in Scripture. Like in Numbers 21, um, it says, And they set out and camped on the other side of Ar Arnon which is in the wilderness that extends in the border of the Amorites, which, of course, we all know that. Um, for Arnon is the border of Moab between Moab and Amorites. Therefore, it is said in the book of the wars of the Lord. Now, do we have the book of the wars of the Lord? No, we do not have that book. That book does not exist in our scripture, no matter how much you want to scowl uh, through or scour through the contents at the beginning. Same thing happens multiple times in scripture. Joshua 10, sun stands still. Pretty famous story in the book of Joshua where the sun says, and he goes, it, this is just like it is written in the book of Jashar, 
Do we have the book of Jashar? No, we do not have the book of Jashar in scripture. First and second Kings does this all over the place. And it's constantly like, these are written in the books of the days of the kings. Like additional things. So the writer of Kings is saying, hey, there's other books out there, but there's other things written about these people. And if you want to ascribe that to Chronicles, sure, but that becomes problematic because Chronicles was written like 400 years after First Kings. And so you have these sort of moments throughout this text where they're even saying, hey, some of the stuff we're talking about, we're quoting from other books. There are edits or revisions that happen in Scripture. Jeremiah 36, pretty famous story as well. In uh, Jeremiah 36, it says, In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, the word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Take, take a scroll and write on it all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel and Judah and all the nations from the day I spoke to you, from the days of Josiah until today. Now, first off, does anybody know by this point in Jeremiah how long it has been since the days of Josiah? If you do, I'd be really impressed. Um, it's been 25 years. 25 years God's been speaking to him. And then suddenly God's like, hey, I need you to write down everything I told you for the last 25 years. Cool. And he does. And he gets a scribe to actually help him do this. Uh, verse 3. It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the disaster that I intend to do to them, so that everyone may turn from his evil way, and that I may forgive their iniquity and sin. And then Jeremiah called Baruch, the son of Neriah, and Baruch wrote on a scroll at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words that the Lord had spoken to him. So Jeremiah gets a scribe. He speaks to the scribe. The scribe writes it down. Um, but the problem becomes that the scribe writes it down, puts it in a great scroll, the king gets his hands on the scroll, and the king decides he doesn't like what Jer Baruch wrote. And the king destroys the scroll, and he burns it up. And so the original copy, whatever it was, is gone, right? It's like writing a, a thesis statement in, in college and having your advisor be like, I'm destroying all of this, and you have to start from scratch again. And so that's what happens. And in verse 32, when Jeremiah took another scroll and gave it to Baruch the scribe, the son of Neriah, who wrote on it at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words on the scroll, of the scroll that Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire. And many similar words were added to them. Which is a weird phrase to finish that with, too, right? So not only are they doing this again, I don't know how accurately or not accurately, they, they, they repeated exactly what was on the first scroll, but you also get this added line, which I don't know if that's, if that's Jeremiah, I don't know if that's Baruch, I don't know if that's later editors who are like, and more stuff was added to what had happened here. Additional words. We see city names get changed throughout scripture. So uh, we find um, ancient names get updated to more modern names in later books. And so stuff like that happens just because if I were to say New Amsterdam, most of us would be like, I don't know where that would be. But if I said New York, everybody would be like, yes, of course. Unless you're a real big fan of They Might Be Giants. But you, that, you would know that the name changed over time. And so we see some of those things. We see the book of Proverbs, which gets this wonderful introduction. This is the book of Proverbs. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. But then as you go, does it stay the son of Proverbs or the, the book of Proverbs by Solomon? No, you, you get other authors as you go. By 22 and 23, we have the 30 sayings of the wise ones. By Proverbs 25, we have more Proverbs of Solomon. By Proverbs 31, uh, we get the words of Agur, son of Jacob. And then my favorite one, Proverbs 31, 1, the words of King Lemuel, an oracle from his mother, that his mother had taught him. And all the moms say, amen. I wish my kids would just listen as if my words are the words of God. Um, but we get that added in. We get visions. We get someone like Isaiah or Ezekiel being like, 
the skies opened up and this is what I saw. Let me, let me best describe the other reality of the heavens to you as best I can with words and language that I attempt to use. We get incredible moments like that. So what does it mean to be inspired, starting with the Old Testament? What do we see so far just in how the Bible talks about itself? Sometimes it's like, hey, write this down. Sometimes it's visions and spectacular things that the authors are trying to describe. Sometimes it's a collection of writings that seem to get added to as time goes on. And sometimes it's just someone's mom who said something profound that they said, hey, we got to put this in the Bible, right? We get a little bit of everything. In the New Testament, the sort of same dynamic between sort of the human side of things and the God side of things keeps playing out as the Bible continues to get formed. And Jesus inaugurates this sort of new community, this new covenant community, and he deputizes people to to go and to repeat his teachings, to to teach others what is said in it. That's how Matthew 28 ends. He sits with his disciples. He's like, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded to you. Now, in some ways, that becomes a reset button to then start Matthew all over again, right? All right, what is all that has been commanded? Let's start back over. And, and at some point, all the gospel writers are going out, or these apostles and disciples are going out and going, hey, we're here to teach you everything that we experienced with Jesus, what he did, what he taught us, all these things, so that you can obey what is true in these scriptures. And so someone like Matthew set out to do that. But then you enter counter Luke, who's a very different person. Who wasn't there at Matthew 28 experiencing this thing? He's, he's a much different individual, and he starts his letter by addressing this Theophilus, which uh, may be uh, one of his, somebody he knows, maybe his patron or something like that, or it might be a community. There's kind of guesses as to how that name should be interpreted. And Luke sets out and he says, here's my goal, because it seems like you have questions. I want, I want to take your uncertainty about Jesus and help make it that much more certain. That's sort of how he starts. Luke 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. So are there other people compiling narratives? Yes. Does he, do we know which ones Luke has or does not have? No, we don't know. Does he have Mark? Does he have Matthew? Does he have some other one that, that we don't even have in our Bibles? It's perhaps possible. And just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the words have delivered them to us. So he's admitting, I was an eyewitness. I have been delivered the eyewitness accounts. It seemed good to me, having followed all things closely at some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So what's inspiration here? Once again, is it God suddenly taking over Luke's senses and just doing something? No, it's Luke saying, hey, I know you guys are struggling with understanding who this person is of Jesus. So I went out and tried to fill the gaps or put it in a certain order so that you would understand who this Jesus is. And Luke likely even interacted with people that interacted with Jesus and, and asked the questions. That's why his birth story. Maybe he approached Mary and Mary's like, here's what really happened. And Matthew left out some stuff. And so um, Luke fills in the gaps. And so we have these sort of experiences. Or even John. John sort of speaks in different ways, where John 20 comes along and says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. So at some point, there's a whole litany of things that could have been recorded, and John chose certain things to record. And, and, and in a certain way, in a certain order, in a certain pattern, 
to express something about Jesus. For these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So he even goes, here's my goal in selecting certain things. So you may believe. I'm, I'm including the stuff that you need to hear to believe and have life in his name. Now the point's coming. Bear with me. We get to the epistles, which are just male Suddenly, mail ends up in Scripture, which we didn't have up to this point, but we get mail. And they're written in unique ways. Some of the authors are writing themselves. Uh, some of the authors are dictating to other people who are writing it down. Um, like in Romans or First Peter, we have that happening, where, the, where it's like, I, Paul, blah, blah, blah. And then at the end of the letter, it's like, oh, and this is actually being written down by somebody else. That's not Paul. And, and so you have some of that happening. You have things like Second uh, Peter 3. Peter starts talking about Paul's writings. He says this, Count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our brother, uh, beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all of his letters, and he speaks of them and on these matters. Now, I should get a big amen on this line. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which is true. It's Paul. So anybody that wants to speak to the, like, what's called the perspicuity of Scripture, the, the clarity of Scripture, which is true for salvation, but we even get Peter going, hey, Scripture's kind of confusing sometimes. And Paul writes in ways that we're still unpacking. Which the ignorant, unstable, twist to their own destruction, as they do other Scriptures. So Peter here categorizes Paul's writings and letters, in some ways, in the same word category as what we would call Scripture. And Paul writes stuff down, ways that are hard to understand. And we get Paul writing in ways that are hard to understand, like in 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul even distinguishes things that God had said versus things that he thinks he's saying, that he's just applying wisdom to, right? 1 Corinthians seven ten. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. So he has this little disclaimer saying, this is something that, that is, comes directly from God, whether that's because of a direct revelation he got or because he's actually reinforcing what Jesus actually said in the Gospels. This is from the Lord. And so he speaks those things. Um, and then by verse 12, to the rest I say, I not the Lord. So he's saying, I think in some ways, he's like, I don't have a direct command from Jesus on this. And so as an apostle, I'm going to speak and I'm going to give wisdom and into the situation, but I don't feel free to make up commands that Jesus never said. And so he adds to that in this process. And then it keeps going by 1 Corinthians 7.25. Now concerning the betrothed or virgins, I have no command from the Lord. So he's saying, I don't, I don't know what the, the command would be here. But I give my judgment as one who, by the Lord's mercy, is trustworthy. So this is Paul's judgment, not a command of the Lord. But this is our scriptures, right? Colossians 4, another weird area. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read to the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. Now, do we have first Laodiceans in our scriptures? No. But we know it was written. We know there was other letters going around for the church. And this is just a reference to one of those letters. And so some of that stuff's going on. And we also balance that with statements like um, Galatians 1. Paul says this, For I know, uh, I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it from a revelation of Jesus Christ. And so Paul's writing right away, who didn't write one of the four Gospels, but saying, look, there are things I got directly from God. This is not just me. Oh, it's been a long time since I've done that. It's not just me listening to others. Um, 1 Thessalonians 2. 
For our appeal, this is another letter to a church in Thessalonica, for our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. And then it continues in verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a word of men, but what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So who wrote the Bible? God? Yes. Men and possibly women? Yes, both. Both are true statements. At times, God said, write down. So they wrote it down. Go with different books. There were different sort of edits and stages of some of these books. We even have the book of Moses, and then we record Moses' death. I don't think Moses wrote his own death. Just throwing that out there. We, we get these sort of moments. At times there's visions. At times there's someone's mom that contributes to the text. Or Jesus saying, what I told you, go tell others. And then there's letters that start going around about this formation of this crowd. And then Peter weighs in going, look, some of this stuff's like, it feels authoritative. It feels like, feels like a word from God himself. And the Bible's inspiration, or at least what we should talk about, reflects the very thing that we say about Jesus. Which is, this book, in some ways, it's fully God's writing and fully man's writing. It is both. And, and, and sometimes we approach this as if it's only the fully God side of things. And I would argue so many hangups and questions exist because we read the text like it's the Book of Mormon or the Quran. And we don't understand the actual writers, the context, the themes that they're working with, the cultures that they're interacting with that are outside of them. And because of the divine part, we do say things like authority and inspiration and all those things, and I affirm them fully to be true. But because of the human part, we say things like context and genre and literary devices and things like that. And if you erase one for the sake of the other, you destroy the Bible. There are those, I think, that, that hold such a high view that I, they actually hold a low view, I would argue, of the simplicity of God being the only author of the Bible. And there are some who say only humanity writes the Bible and God's not really involved. It's just best thoughts on who this God is through history. And both, I think, ultimately lead to a misunderstanding of Scripture itself. The Bible's a record itself of this human and divine partnership. That is what the story is right from page one. So it shouldn't be surprising that the record of human and divine partnership is itself a human and divine partnership. It's what we get from the first page. God invites humanity into the work he is doing and saying, you will be my partners to accomplish this divine word and a human word. And hear me, there is a lot of money to be made in exposing Christians right now to the fact that there's nuance to scripture. And there's a lot of ways that people can be led astray and sell a lot of books to do so, to point out that there's textual variants and scribes messing with words and things like that. And it's only a hang-up if the whole thought is this whole thing is this thing, golden tablet, that's coming from Scripture. And, and suddenly, if, if that's not true, then all of this has to be false. And that is not a true statement. It's a false equivalence based upon a, a, a thought about the Scripture that's just not right. Tom Wright, I think, has a great definition of inspiration. He says, inspiration is a shorthand way of talking about the belief that by the Spirit, God guided the very different writers and editors so that the books they produced were books God intended his people to have. 
And so in some ways, the Spirit's involved in all of these processes. I just want to be cautious that we don't overestimate um, God's sort of control of the authors as they write. Because then we start losing out on things like context and genre and devices. And I think many of us, this will be sort of like the second half of the sermon, even though I got six minutes. For many of us, it's like, yeah, we read the Bible in context, but I still don't think we get it. <laughs> like, I'm not sure what a 30-minute quiet time will do, will, will truly do justice to all that I think it's helpful to unpack in Scripture. Um, the questions of like, who am I? Who are they? Um, what, what kind of text is this that I'm reading? These are really important questions. Um, I would say the, probably the three most important questions to ask. And the first one, which I will point out, the goal of this is actually to not be self-seeking, but to ask, who am I? Because I, I, I need a reminder when I approach text that I am distant <laughs> from this text in many ways. Time, culture, worldview, contact. Like, I am so far distant from these things. And so um, I'm going to point out three generalizations that I think we all struggle with about ourselves, right? First is that I approach the text as an individualist. The second is I approach the text as an interpretive narcissist, which means I, I look to everything being about me. And third, I approach the text from a cultural position where I'm at the center and I'm affluent and I'm safe. And it's very, very different from the original audience. And if you don't like these words, sorry, uh, they're not woke words, they're just descriptors. But first, we are individuals. Are we individuals? Yeah, we're individuals. We, we know that. Is the individual the most important thing in our entire worldview? For most of us, yes. This is America, it's how we function. Anything that compromises individual choice is a bad thing, right? Yes, that's how we function, right? Um, our entire system is built on maintaining individual rights. The political parties are just arguments over which how to draw those lines. That's all they are, right? One will say, hey, we shouldn't force people to do anything with their money and guns, right? And the other one will say, hey, we shouldn't force anybody to do anything with the sexuality, drug use, body autonomy, some of those kind of conversations, right? It's still an individual conversation because that's the world we swim in, right? It's the water we are in as the fish in the water. And debate assumes the individual is still at the center. The Bible was written by communities for communities, right? That's just how the Bible functions. It is written communally time and time and time and time and time and time again. For example, we read about the armor of God. It's our default to suddenly make that about ourselves, that we individually need to like put on the, the armor of God. You can go to the Christian bookstore and buy yourself like all the little pieces of the armor of God and think about how it applies to you. But the context of Ephesians is you all, y'all, the whole church, are to put on the armor of God. Y'all are supposed to do that, meant to sort of mean the whole church. So who wears the armor of God? The community. And this isn't about me sort of picking all the individual pieces of the armor together. It's about the community together through the combination of spiritual gifts under the lordship of Jesus, living and breathing the gospel, and how they deal with each other and move forward in that. that that's, that's the context. Or interpretive narcissism that we bring to the text. So the Bible's about me. It's about me. It's for me. To help me. Right? What's, who's the pronoun in all those? Me. Right? So, Jeremiah 29 which we got posted in the kids' area. That was my doing, so you could blame me for that. But 
I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper, right? And we hear that, and we go, yeah, I'm going to claim that. Well, we better claim the context, too, then, if we're going to go ahead and claim those kind of verses. This is, in Jeremiah, Israel in the midst of their exile. They have been chastised. They have been disciplined. Most significant sort of covenant threat in the history of the Old Testament is happening right then. And there's instructions. Hey, while you're under Babylon, while you're out in, in um, this territory that has just destroyed your nation, while you're stuck there, seek the peace of the city, seek the shalom, have families, grow some gardens, go do those things because it's going to be a while until we take you back home. And God reminds them, hey, I'm going to be back again because guess what? Through all of this, I have a plan for you, plans to prosper. So do we claim all that too? Do we, do we claim God's silence? Do we claim God's exile? Do we claim the marginalization and persecution that comes from uh, God ultimately bringing us through holiness through this whole process? No, we just want to grab that one verse and be like, yeah. And that's about material blessing and safety and comfort and middle-class values. Right? What this verse does for me is probably the worst starting question to ask of Scripture. It just is. It's not a bad one. I think it's one down the road. But I think too often we open our Bibles going, oh, what does this mean to me? Or Romans, for I know all the things that God works for the good of those who love him. In the context of what Paul is saying, you know what those good works are? To be conformed into the image of Jesus. That's exactly what he says right after that. Going, here, here is what God is doing in you. To be conformed to the image of his son. What is the main image of the son of Jesus? Or the son of God in Jesus? A cross. That is what we're being conformed into. That is the good works that he is preparing for us. To, to die daily and be crucified. That, that is the picture. Right? It's, it's, we, we still make it about ourselves. Or we come from a place, the sort of third part, we come from a place where we are the center, we're affluent, and we're safe. Right? Like, I'll speak to myself. I am part of majority culture. I am, and I would argue we are, amongst the most material-blessed, safe people in the history of the world. Right? As Americans, we just are. We have access to clean water. We have access to food. We have access to just about everything that, through the history of the world, was a struggle for just about everybody. And outside of kind of Western context, it's still a struggle in a lot of places. Right? That is how we approach the text. That is not the audience of so much of Scripture. It just isn't. Like, even Paul, like, I feel kind of bad for the people in Corinth, but, like, Paul's like, for consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. So basically, like, Paul, you guys are kind of dumb, right? Brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly studies. Not many of you were powerful. I mean, none of you really had powerful. You were kind of low on the totem pole. Not many of you have noble birth. You weren't born into anything special. But God chose what was foolish in the world. So he just called them fools. He told what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what was weak. He just called them weak to shame the strong. And the church had some wealthy people. There were like people like Lydia and others that, yes, there were people of status and they probably helped host the house churches. But for majority, from what we know of history, up really until Constantine, the church was, was this. It was the margins. It was the poor. It was those of, of sort of downcast status. So they come from all these sort of different backgrounds. They come from house churches. This would be mega church. Even today, when our attendance is light, because we're missing like uh, at least one whole life group today. Even today, the attendance is light. This would like be like a mega church in the first century, 
right? It was like multiple house churches gathered together. This would be what you would end up with. They were people that were, that was tiny, of no political power. They were living in an empire that was antithetical to the value system of Jesus. So they're not sitting around going, who should we vote for this year? That's not a conversation that exists in scripture because they wouldn't have had it. It wouldn't have been anywhere close to that. They weren't like, which emperor do we think is really the Antichrist? It's not, it's not the conversation. The social order was unique uh, for their time. Slaves and freemen and women, rich, poor, Jew, Gentile, Scythians, barbarians, all of these people all getting together with very conflicting and odd worldviews to each other. And they had to navigate that. So like half of Paul's letters are like, you guys got to figure out how to get along. It's just constant. They were illiterate. So every week, the text would be sort of read out loud together because most of them could not read from all we know. There's no such thing as a verse out of context. <laughs> that wouldn't have been an option. It'd be like, oh, hey, Phoebe showed up and she's got a letter from Paul. She's, she's going to read that now for all of us. Cool? And she, and she would read that. So like, I was glad that, that Trey finished the Ephesians series by like reading the whole letter through. Because that's how it would have been received. No one would be like, hey, we got this letter from Paul uh, to us here at Ephesus. Hey, over the next 12 weeks, we're going to read a portion of that letter and then talk about it. Now, hear me. There's a benefit to that. I'm not shooting it down. That's how we do things here. But there's something to that format that, that we also have added to the process of what this Bible looks like. So, I am centered. I'm not persecuted. I'm fluent by all accounts of a global standard. I'm not poor. I'm safe. I'm not under threat in any way right now. So there's a distance between me and the social status of the original audience. You go to a bookstore and you look in the Christian section and we will see that gap very quickly. What is the major topic of most books in the Christian bookstore? How to be blessed, right? In, in ways that are very worldly standards of blessing. It's, it's comfort, safety, protection, and prosperity. It's middle upper class values. That is like half the books of, of you go to Barnes and Noble in the Christian bookstore, top sellers for all over the place. But that's not the business that Jesus is in. And maybe he does some of those things in the process, but he is in the business of turning you and me into little versions of himself. And that might include financial blessing, and it might not. It might include comfort, and it might not. This book is trans transcultural in its settings. And so if someone in the Sudan and someone in Brazil and someone in a house church in China are going to see these things differently than you and I will often see them. And we got to be okay with that and to be challenged by that and to ask questions about ourselves before we assume what's going on. Now, the audience has its own text itself. What are the languages of the Bible? we got at least three, right? Hebrew, Greek, yeah, Koine Greek, and Aramaic. There's a few sections that are Aramaic parts of Daniel, some quotes from Jesus, stuff like that. How many of you speak any of those in their original context? None of us. I've studied that stuff, and I don't speak. I don't, I'm not. It's still, I'm relying on the shoulders of, of thousands of individuals who have done a lot of research. It's just part of the process. That's what we do. There are debates about it. There's debates how to translate things. It's all over the place. We're removed from the original language. Let me give you an example of how this could look. If I say the black mamba crushed the Greek freak, what does that mean? Basketball. Yeah, basketball is a good one. Who's the black mamba? 
We are so not a sports church. Who's the Black Mamba? Kobe Ryan. Who's the Greek freak? Giannis, right? Now, 2,000 years ago, if someone picks up that sentence, what are they going to do with that? They're going to be like, yeah, what's a, what's a black mamba? Oh, it's a snake. What's the Greek freak? Well, it's somebody that was mentally unstable from Greece. And they would have like created this whole image of what that actually looked like and played out. And I would argue the book of Revelation does that all the time. And we struggle to understand that book because there's so much deep symbolism of Rome, a first century culture, and we just start making it. We, uh, there's a serpent. We got to look for that serpent. We got we to look for all these very literal interpretations of some of these words. I'm stirring the pot. I know some of you have some deep ties to, to how to interpret revelations, but this is what we do. We, we bring our assumptions to the text, time, culture, language. It's all over the place. And then we have the lack of plurality in the word you in our text that makes it that much harder. I love being in the South where we could say y'all, and I wish they would translate the text that way. And plurals, like the fruit of the Spirit. The plural of fruit is what? Fruit, right? You know the fruit of the Spirit is a singular word in the Greek. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. One fruit, singular fruit. Not only that, guess what? Galatians is written to who? A group of people. And so the fruit of the Spirit suddenly becomes this litmus test for my individual spiritual life, and I go, how am I doing at joy? How am I doing at peace? How am I? As opposed to Paul writing to a community saying, ultimately, you should be this kind of community, and all of these things should collectively be a part of what identifies you as a community on your spiritual journey. It's a very different way to read that text. Language is complicated. Who are my Midwesterners in the room? Right? We got a few of y'all. Right? Okay. If I say, yeah, no, what does that mean? Does that mean yes or no? It means no, right? Yeah, as a, as a Midwesterner, that sort of truly means no. What about uh, no, yeah? What does that mean, no or yes? That means more yes, right? What about, um, what about well, what does that mean? It means it's time to leave, right? That means, hey, hey, we're out of here. Well, time to go, right? It's Midwestern talk, right? Southerners in the room. Bless your heart. What comes after that? Something not nice, right? It's going, to be, it's going to be some weird statement. It doesn't literally mean, I really want to bless this person. And it's just what language does. Or you call someone too big for their britches. Does that mean their pants literally can't fit well? No, right? But this is what language does, and we have this. And we have 2,000 to 3,500 years removal from the language, and we have to parse these things out to, to understand it that much more. Oh, gosh, there's so many more things I want to cover. I'll skip it for now. We'll, we'll do more next week. And so this book is complex. It's nuanced. And, and I'm going to argue that so much of our hang-ups come when we approach a text and, and we use... I've said this to a few of you all lately. At some point, as enlightenment turned into modernism, there were a lot of accusations against Scripture. Hey, this, these things don't line up historically. Miracles, we just don't, we don't take those anymore. All these sort of accusations of Scripture. Like, I don't know how to read Genesis, all this kind of stuff. And my worry is that instead of going backwards, of going, all right, how do we read this book well in its historical setting, the church goes, hey, we're going to answer all those objections and double down on modernist enlightenment views to answer them. And, and we invent words like inerrant, words that scripture doesn't actually use to speak of itself. 
And then everything has to now fit this box that we've created of modernist enlightenment views in terms of interpreting scripture. And I want to really cautious us from heading down that road. That some of our hangups around stories in Joshua and some of our hangups around Genesis 1 through 11 and some of our hangups with things that feel like conflicting things in scripture. And we'll talk about some of those next week. That, that suddenly we're like, well, we can't believe any of this anymore. And that's just not true. We have to interpret this book as this book is given to us. And so, um, we'll, as I said, we'll deal more next week. This is not a sermon that's like, here are my applications to walk away with, and I feel encouraged. It's not that. Okay? This is just not how this series is going to totally work. Um, but I hope that, that you are more equipped to be disciples through some of the stuff we're going to talk through, some of the stuff this week and some of the stuff next week, and, and have more questions. Gosh, I hope. I hope in your head now you're like, oh, I got 50 more questions to follow all that up with. Um, that's okay. I want those. So resonateatlanta.org forward slash questions if you want to do that while the band's playing. No offense, man. Um, let me pray for us. We're going to take communion, which is like the centerpiece of this whole thing to begin with, right? Like we are all on this journey with Jesus together and the spirit conforming us more into the image of Christ. And we all have our doubts. We all have things we're thinking about. We all have things that we've struggled with, all of them. Yet we come as a community together and share the table. In the early church, it is the barbarians and the Scythians and the Greeks and the Jews and stuff like that, and they were struggling, but they had this in common. And it would come, the, the one faith that they had, and be unified in to say that Jesus is Lord, and that Jesus has done for us that we could not do, and he has ultimately taken sin away from us so that we now can live out this righteousness, this standing before God as a one family transformed by the spirit and ushering in the, the heavenly, it's the, the kingdom of God into this world. And that's what we celebrate when we come to the table. So we give thanks to God, our father, it's sort of the opening prayer. God, the father, that our savior, Jesus Christ, before he suffered, gave us this memorial to a sacrifice until he comes again. So at this last supper, at his last supper, the Lord Jesus took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took a cup after supper. He poured it and gave thanks for it. He said, this is a cup in the new covenant of my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. For whenever we eat this bread and drink of this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. So therefore, we proclaim our faith as signed and sealed by this proclamation that the church has been saying for thousands of years. And it goes like this. Christ has died. Christ has risen. And Christ has come again. Christ will come again. Sorry. Changed my verses. So let's pray. Lord, our God, send your Holy Spirit so that this bread and cup may be for us the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. May we and all the saints be united with Christ and remain faithful in hope and love. Gather your whole church, O Lord, into the glory of your kingdom. And we pray in the name of the Father who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen.